Amen. Have thy own way, Lord. Have thy own way. Last year, an interesting article appeared in New York Times. The title of the article caught my attention. It said, Motherhood as a retreat from equality. Motherhood as a retreat from equality. The author was making a comparison between European countries on the options the government offers to parents to keep children in daycare so that moms could work full-time jobs. The article quoted Basha Mika, author of a controversial best-selling book entitled The Cowardice of Women, who claimed the following. Even if childcare eats up all of the female income, there is a long-term payoff to staying in the labor market. What's the matter with us? Mrs. Mika asks German women. Don't we want to be free and equal? We are collaborating with a system that reduces us to motherhood. She writes, We involuntarily choose to be powerless and adjust to self-invicted Self-inflicted victimhood, that's cowardice. What is amazing about in this article is not simply the author's definition of freedom and equality for women, but in the author's mind, it seems that motherhood was a big obstacle to this freedom and equality. How amazing that what God had given women as a blessing to perpetuate the human race, we start seeing it as an obstacle to their freedom and equality. This is the wisdom of our world on the role of women. What does God have to say about womanhood? What does the Bible have to say about the role and responsibilities and honors of women? Well, today we will talk about Three very controversial subject matters. Submission, gender roles, and the cherry on the cake is salvation through childbearing. Today's sermon is a continuation of the sermon we began last week entitled Getting Down with His and Hers. Today's part two of that. I encourage you to open scripture to 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 8 through 15. If you're using one of the Bibles provided in the chair in front of you, you may find this passage on page 1029. Now, we are in our sixth sermon on the series of 1 Timothy, a series entitled God's House, God's Rules. Let's hear the, the word of the Lord for us this morning. I want men everywhere to lift up holy hands in prayer without anger or disputing. I also want women to dress modestly, with decency and propriety, not with braided hair or gold or pearls or expensive clothes, but with good deeds appropriate for women who profess to worship God. A woman should also learn in quietness and full submission. I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over a man. She must be silent. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not the one deceived. It was the woman who was deceived and became a sinner. But women will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith, love, 
and holiness with propriety. Amen. Let's go to the Lord in prayer for this passage and for what he needs to teach us. Father, we come before you asking you to guide us as we seek to understand your word for our lives. Father, I recognize, I, I confess that I need your help this morning. My words and my wisdom are not enough, cannot do the job that you and your spirit need to do this morning in our hearts. Father, we depend on you, we submit to you, and we ask that you would be glorified in us even as we hear this word. In the name of Jesus we pray, amen. Well, before we jump into the issue of submissiveness, I want to say something about last week's sermon. I want to appreciate all the women who have been exhibiting modesty even before last week's sermon. I have been approached more than once by either visitors or recent members who have re responded as a result of last week's sermon and observed that women at Park Hills do wear and do dress modest clothing. Ladies, thank you for doing that. And thank you that that sermon was not so much to correct some clear, off-the-wall behavior in most of your lives. Now, I hope last week's sermon also encouraged you to understand why we need to continue to cherish modesty. And I hope it encouraged you how we can talk about it graciously and, and, and think about it in a way that honors God and equips other believers. Now, today, we will move on to the issue of submission. And if last week was a sensitive topic, hard to swallow or hard to talk about, today is probably going to be the climax of that. Now, I must clarify once again that the issue of submission is related to worship. Not just for women, but for all Christians. If modesty, we saw how last week, modesty is rooted in worship, submission is also rooted in worship. If we do not understand the overall framework of worship as a foundation for this teaching, we will not understand this the idea of submission. We'll look at three points today. Submission is rooted in worship. Submission is rooted in worship. Second, submission is displayed in the difference of gender roles. Submission is displayed in the difference of gender roles. And finally, so submission is celebrated in childbearing as a means of salvation. Submission is celebrated as child, in childbearing as a means of salvation. Last week when addressing the theme of modesty, we, we clearly pointed out that modesty is rooted in worship, is an outflow of worship, and is displayed in clothing choices. Is worship displayed in clothing choices. Today, we want to see how worship is leading us to an attitude of submission. How is submission an outflow of worship? Friends, as a matter of fact, submission is rooted in worship. Uh, this first point comes from the fact that Paul says in verse 11, after he said in verse 10, women who profess to worship God, after he said women who profess to worship God, he says also a woman should learn in quietness and full submission. 
the, the, the verse 11 follows after verse 10. But the notion of worship and submission being connected also is part of the larger story of God's redemption. And here's how. We prefer to think about worship and submission as two different poles. The notion of submission and as worship in the Christian faith has not been much emphasized for a number of reasons. We prefer to think of our relationship to God through the lens of love, not through the lens of submission. That's one reason. A second reason is that the culture around us leads us to assume and to think that love and submission are opposite extremes, two different poles. And we Christians have bought into that. Yet friends, in Scripture, love for God is surrendering of our affections and our wills to God. In Scripture, love and submission are not two opposite extremes. I often hear Christian apologists that compare Islam with Christianity. Say that Islam, and this is true, Islam means submission to the will of God. So they say, that's Islam. But Christianity is a different thing altogether. It is loving God. I need to be honest with you. I think that comparison does more damage than help. And here's why. In Scripture, love and submission, or submission and love, should not clash one against the other. Now, I need to make a clarification. It is true that you can submit to God or to someone without true love and without worship. You can do it out of fear. You can do it out of the fear of man. You do it out of duty. You can submit without love or without worship. But you cannot love without some dimension of submission to be present. So you can submit to someone apart from love and worship, but you cannot love and worship without submission. I, does that make sense? I want, you, I want you to understand that. And that's why this contrast between love and submission, even between Islam and Christianity, is just not a very helpful one. Not in that way. There's other ways we could talk about it, but not in this way. From the beginning of the Old Testament, Moses tried to clarify that God's intention in the giving of the laws and in asking Israel to obey was never an obedience apart from love, but love practiced through obedience. In the book, the, the book in the Old Testament that connects these concepts of love and submission the most, most well is the book of Deuteronomy. Actually, no book in the Bible will connect love and submission or love and obedience so well as the book of Deuteronomy. The closest that comes in the New Testament will be the book of 1 John. But in Deuteronomy, God said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. And then, of course, we see in the New Testament, Jesus clarifies this misunderstanding that we talked about earlier when he told, tells his disciples, if you love me, 
you will obey my commands. And we could go on to, uh, to other texts. I want to clarify that while we can submit without love, we cannot love without submitting. Actually, the very posture of worship in the Old Testament, the act of bowing down, of, of, of bending over, fundamentally expresses awe and submission to God. So to worship God is not about getting an emotional high. It's not about singing a certain style. It's not even about coming to church. Worship of God at its root involved, among other things, an attitude of love and submission to God. And we cannot drive a wedge between these two. Now, friend, if talk about God is fairly new to you, then this notion of submission to God may be even more scared. If I were in your place, I'd, I'd feel the same. Why would I want to relate to a God to whom I must submit? That is not very attractive. That is not very appealing. We will not grow churches if that's what we tell people. But friend, I, need, I want to make sure that you understand what is the starting point of worship and how all of this relates to submission and how all of this relates to the gospel. Because this notion of submission as worship is rooted in the very gospel which we Christians are called to proclaim. True worship of God, true worship of God begins only when people respond to the gospel and live out the gospel. In other words, people who do not know the gospel or who have not responded to it, they cannot truly worship God. So if you're here this morning and you're searching for God, I'm glad you're searching for God. We, we want to welcome you. We want to talk to you. We want to find out where you are and, 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 and embrace you. But I just want to be honest with you. In front of God, your worship truly counts or worship truly starts happening when you understand the gospel and you respond to it. And here's why. The gospel is a news is a, the greatest headline news about what God has done for us. He created us. He owns us. He made us for His pleasure and for His holiness to be a reflection of His perfection. To worship God means to be a reflection of God. Is to ascribe God the honor, the greatness, and to desire that honor and greatness and holiness to be present in this life, in this body. That's what it means to worship God, is to have our attention drawn, att uh, given to Him. But the Bible tells us that despite the fact that this is how God created us, that despite the fact that God created us for the purpose of worshiping God, of reflecting His nature and character, we rebelled against God. We chose to turn our back from that and instead seek the control, to take the control in our own lives. And we find ourselves, instead of desiring to, to reflect God's glory and nature, we find ourselves enemies of God. We find ourselves at war with the one who created us, with the one who is infinitely more powerful and more perfect than we are. And this gap between us and God, between us and God, is a terrible news because there will come a day when God, in His righteous judgment, will come against all His enemies. Yet, 
he provided a way to bridge the gap. And he bridged that gap and he dissolved the enmity first by calling out Abraham to start a new people for himself who would exhibit, who would portray God's nature and holiness. And God gave them laws how to deal with their sin and rebellion. And most of those laws were met in the sacrificial system, in the shedding of blood. Because from the Old Testament times, God said that the only way to deal with a gap, the only way to deal with a rebellion between us and God was by the shedding of blood. Because the wages of sin is death. Yet this sacrificial system was not able to cleanse the conscience of the, of the worshiper. And that's why hundreds of years later, God sent his only son to live the perfect life that Israel was not able to live. The perfect life that you and I cannot live. And on that cross, Christ took upon himself the wrath of God and gave us instead his perfection, his holiness, so that we for the first time can start worshiping God. Not because of what we have done, because of what Christ has done for us. That's why we cannot truly worship God until we understand the gospel and respond to it. Because worship of God is only possible through Christ. Do you understand that? You may come this morning with a genuine desire that you want to worship God. And we commend you for that. But I want to make sure you understand that from God's perspective, the only worship that counts is worship that happens through the sacrifice of Christ, through understanding and responding to the gospel. Now, friend, if you have not responded to this gospel, if you have not responded to this news and you just don't know how to do so, first of all, I encourage you to, to do so today. And here's what it is involved in you trying to respond to this gospel. Let me unpack for you what this means. First, you must understand that God's holy standard can never be met by our effort. It can never be met by our work. And you also must understand that your sinfulness will receive the righteous judgment of God unless you turn yourself into Christ, who is the only mediator. If you believe this truth, that Christ alone is able to bridge the gap between your sinfulness and God's holiness, then surrender your desire to remain in your sinfulness and turn to him and accept his means of salvation. Believe in what Christ has done for you. And at that point, God's, God gives you a new nature. And through this new nature, you can finally worship God truthfully. The surrender is the act of repentance. The surrender is the initial act of submission to God's means of salvation. So to, to respond to the gospel is to submit to the gospel, to submit to God's means of saving us because we believe it is true. Friend, if you hear this message and believe it, I encourage you to respond today. And I'm sure you may have lots of questions. I would love to talk to you at the end of the service. But submission is rooted in the gospel. Our response, the only response to the gospel is to submit to the God's means of salvation. Now, if you are a Christian, if you profess to be a Christian, here's a big challenge. This news of the gospel is not only for our conversion, it's also for our daily walk with Jesus. We need to be reminded daily of this gospel. Otherwise, we will fall back on trying to impress God with our moralistic effort and thus fall into legalism. Or we will fall back into treating our sin lightly, forgetting that God rescued us 
from that sin. And the submission which, we, which the gospel created in me initially at my conversion might start feeling more like a duty than a gratitude. And that's why we need to be reminded of the gospel daily so that our submission will never turn into just a dutiful law, but a grateful, joyful response to what God has done to us. I'll start bargaining with God about how much is enough to, pa- to, to pass the satisfied God test. Do you fall into that trap? God, how much is enough? Just give me the basics. That's the only thing I'm willing to submit to. And we started that bargain with God. If, if you think that way, clearly you have diminished the view of the gospel in your life. Because when you understand when the gospel is full and rich and, and grown and, and enlarging in your life, you put those kind of questions aside. I hope you understand, my dear friend, believers, why the gospel is so crucial to our, our life of submission. Worship is, of God is not about having a spiritual high or singing the songs we like or singing or simply coming to church. It's incredibly unfortunate why we have equated worship with music. We call music ministers a worship leaders. Worship at its core is about our joyful submission to God as a result of understanding the gospel and responding to it. William Temple said the following about worship and submission. Worship is the submission of all our nature to God. It is the quickening of conscience by His holiness nourishment of mind by his truth, purifying of imagination by his beauty, opening of the heart to his love, and submission of our will to his purpose. All this gathered up in adoration is the greatest of all expressions of which we are capable. That is worship. True biblical submission is rooted in worship. That's point number one. The second point is that submission is seen in different gender roles. Now here where it gets, it gets fun. I want, I want you to, to, to relax, take, take a deep breath, put your seatbelts on, because I do not want to lose you in the process. We may understand the notion of submission to God as worship conceptually. Okay, okay, Samuel, you convinced us. We have to submit. We just have to buy into this. Okay, we do. We do joyfully, gladly, thankfully. Until that submission takes real life scenarios. Until that submission actually gets to be played out in real life settings. What do you mean? How does this worship of God look like? How does this submission to God look like? God in his goodness and kindness knew that we are so concerned with nuts and bolts issues that he made it very clear for us. And he put in our lives all kinds of people whom he set set them up as authority figures to whom we must submit. And our submission to God is is not just a conceptual spiritual reality. It's a very practical day to day experience by how we submit to these authority figures. Let me start with the broadest one God set up the state as an authority over us. And as long as the state does its job and, not, and does not make laws that, that lead us to disobey God 
as long as the state does its job well, we are called to submit to the state as a reflection of our submission to God. So somebody who claims that they submit to God, but they're breaking the laws left and right, it's hypocritical. Because to submit to God spiritually and conceptually is played out in the day-to-day life of submitting to the state. Now, God had done a few other agents. For instance, parents are God's authority figures for children. Children, you worship God and you submit to God by submitting to the authority figures, that God, that, that the parents that God has given you. The church. In the church, God set, first of all, his word to be the measure of authority to which we submit. So the church is called to submit to the word and to Christ, Christ revealed in the word, and everything we do should be out of submission to his headship, to Christ. God gave leaders in the church who are called to lead by submitting to God's word. God gave spiritual leaders in the church to lead the congregation, and God is asking members to submit to the spiritual leadership of the church as a way to submit to God. Now, of course, the key thing is when the spiritual leadership of the church is itself submitting to following God. In other words, this submission is not an absolute submission. We submit to God. That is the ultimate submission. We submit to his word. We submit to Christ by submitting to the authority figures that God has placed over us as long as they do represent Christ and his word and God and his direction. So that submissiveness is an actual experience for every Christian person. Friends, submissiveness is not just for women. The whole life of faith is a life of submission. And if we have a hard time understanding the, this concept of how submission plays itself in, in real-life settings, we need to understand the biblical concept of worship and the gospel and how it plays out in submission. And yet, in this text, Paul gives a special emphasis on women to exemplify submission to God by submitting to the male spiritual leadership that God set up in the church. Now, this submission is further practiced in the home where God set up the husband to be the head of the wife. And we could talk about that, and that could take us a whole set of sermons. We will not talk about submission in the home today. We will talk about submission in the context of the church. In the church, God assigned the role of spiritual teaching and spiritual leadership to men and not to women. Look at verse 11 and 12. A woman should learn in quietness and full submission. I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over a man. She must be silent. Now notice what Paul desires for women to do. He does want them to learn, which, by the way, was not generally encouraged in Judaism. And here Paul, a Jew, does want women to to learn. It is a positive command. But do so in quietness or in silence. First, The word quietness does not refer simply to absence of words or mutedness in the sense that women could not ask questions. Friends, Paul uses the very same word just a few verses earlier in 1 Timothy 2, 2, 
When Paul says, I urge then, first of all, that requests, prayers, intercession, and thanksgiving be made for everyone, for kings and all those in authority, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. Peaceful and quiet lives. In other words, silence means not simply the absence of noise or speech, but the presence of quietness, peace, and tranquility. Quietness is more than physical silence. It is a spiritual attentiveness and receptiveness. It is the opposite of agitation, impatience, or annoyance, or a disputing spirit, which Paul addressed men a few verses earlier. Friends, do not think, or especially men, can I speak to men now? Men do not think that this kind of submission is just for women. This kind of attentiveness, this kind of quietness and full submission is for men also. In Isaiah 66, verse 2, um, the, author, the prophet says, This is the one I esteem, speaking for God. This is the one I esteem, he who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. Friends, a submissive attitude to God's word, an, attentive, an attitude that is ready to receive God's word, to be instructed, to be corrected, an attitude of teachability is required of all those who profess to be Christians, males or females. Can I hear a big amen from the men? Amen? And yet, Paul defines submissiveness further by drawing a distinctive role between men and women. The notion of silence, which Paul wants women to display, is not just a receptivity to God's word. It's also an acceptance of the spiritual authority that God set up. Look at verse 12. I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over men. She must be silent. Here we see that silence in view is a refraining from the office of teaching and of holding spiritual authority over men. Now, one of the reasons for this prohibition is that the role of teaching and spiritual authority in the church was given to the elders and overseers of the church, as we will see in chapter 3 and chapter 5. The prohibition against teaching does not imply that a woman should do no teaching at all in any context. Titus 2, verse 4, Paul stated that older women should teach younger women. Acts 18, a man and his wife began explaining in private the ways of God to Apollos. Timothy himself was trained in the faith by his mother and grandmother. So what is this prohibition about? One well, on one side, the limitation Paul sets on women. Teaching and having authority over men relates to context where men are present, whether that's Sunday school, home groups, corporate, ga corporate gathering of the church. Also, in the context... It is in the context where such teaching includes the truths of the doctrines of the Bible, which includes preaching or group Bible study. In this case, giving testimony or reading scripture or encouraging one another to live out the faith are not part of this prohibition. The prohibition is over issues of having the office of teaching the church or the office of spiritual authority in the church. The point of the passage is spiritual authority over men and spiritual teaching of men. This should only be done by godly spiritual men. Now let me put it this way. Not just by men. Please understand, ladies, 
this issue is not just a gender issue. This issue is a reality that God wants spiritual men to teach and to lead the church. To an increasing number of Christians, this demarcation of responsibility based on gender sounds very restricting and patriarchal. Some evangelicals claim that this command was just a cultural difference so that we today are no longer tied to follow this instruction. Such evangelicals call themselves evangelical feminists. Yet, let's look at the biblical grounds for these commands. And I know, again, I, I hope I haven't lost you. I hope the seatbelt is still on. But let's look at why Paul is saying this. What are the reasons? Well, look at verse 13 and 14. It's not simply the patriarchal culture of Paul's day, but the order of creation and then the order of the fall in verse 13 and 14. For Adam was fo formed first, then Eve. In other words, way before the fall, God created man prior to the woman. And this alone should be a difference, not of worth, but of responsibilities. Therefore, the difference of roles between men and women in God's household is based on God's order of creation. Now, the second argument is the order of deception. Adam was not the one deceived. It was the woman who was deceived and became a sinner. By this, Paul is not saying that Adam did not sin. He did sin. But he did not sin through being deceived by the serpent. Eve was the one who was deceived by the serpent. But in doing so, Eve was also deceived precisely in taking the initiative over the man whom God has given to her to be with her and to care for her. The devil's strategy, dear friends, has been to attack the order which God had set up. It is key to emphasize that the different roles were not created by the fall. The different roles were created prior to the fall. But after the fall, the tension between the roles increased. Since the order of creation and fall are Paul's arguments for this teaching, we think that his view on the authority and gender roles is valid for us today also. Now ladies, this by no means implies that you get to keep secondary roles in the church. Not at all. All Christian women are spiritual gifted and are commended by God to use their gifts freely for the building up of the body of Christ. For some women, this includes a gift of teaching. And they should use this gift in teaching other women, in teaching children and youth. Such teaching ministry is absolutely vital for the life of the church. And there's so many other ministries that are vital for us to have women involved in them. Submission does not mean less valuable. Submission does not mean weaker. Submission does not mean less important. Submission does not mean inferior. And if you're not convinced of these statements, look with me with to Paul, what Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 11.3. You don't have to turn there. Just listen. 1 Corinthians 11.3. Now I want you to realize that the head of every man is Christ. And the head of every woman is man. And the head of Christ is God. According to this verse, it's clear that while Christ is equal with God in substance and worth, God the Father is still head over God the Son. They are two distinct persons of equal worth and value, yet Christ's relationship to the Father is one of submission. 
In a similar way, we can claim that men and women are equal before God. Yet God made the man to have spiritual leadership role over a woman. That should happen in the home where husband is a priest and the head of the wife. And in the church where male spiritual leadership is set up by God to guide and shepherd the flock. Friends, by pursuing the submissive attitude in our relationships, we actually reflect the Trinitarian relationships that exist between God, the Father, God, the Son, and God, the Holy Spirit. So far, we looked at submission rooted in worship. Submission displayed in the difference of gender roles. And finally, let's look at submission celebrated in childbearing as a means of salvation. This, this passage, this last verse, has a great promise. Full of all kinds of ex- exegetical difficulties. What does this mean? What does it mean when Paul says, but women will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with propriety? We could spend lots of time on this verse alone. Clearly, this is what it does not mean. It does not mean that general childbirth is a universal means of salvation. Salvation is through Christ alone, through his sacrifice. Paul said that early in verse 5, where he said there's only one God and one mediator between man and God, the man Christ Jesus. Paul also gives an important if clause. He says they will be saved if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with propriety. So whatever Paul means by salvation, it does not happen automatically apart from exercising faith, love, holiness, and modesty in an ongoing way. And yet, why is Paul talking about childbearing as a means of salvation? What does he mean by this? In this verse, Paul takes time to make sure that women understand the incredible role they have in God's design. Yes, women may not have spiritual authority over men due to the creation order and due to the fall. But it does not mean that now womanhood should be seen in any way a second-class status. Quite the contrary, God used motherhood and womanhood to be the means through which he provided a savior to us and thus a salvation. Humanity received the savior through the birth of the woman. This was promised in, in, in Genesis 3.15 when God cursed the serpent saying, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. Friends, it was through the woman's childbearing that the Savior came into the world. What an incredible honor bestowed on women. And ladies, men have not been bestowed with that honor. You have an honor that God bestowed on you that men do not have. What's more amazing that in God's orchestration of the details of Christ's birth is that man had no part in it. That's why we call it the virgin birth. It is only the woman who had a part together with the Holy Spirit in the incarnation of Christ. And this is one of the fundamental truths of our faith. Friends, God has bestowed tremendous honor on ladies, on our women. It's amazing when you read Mary's song in Luke 2 that the, strong, the, the, strong, the song of Mary echoes with tones of submission to the will of God and praise to Him. 
Friends, when we think, and ladies, in this final verse, when we think about what Paul is doing here, he's encouraging us not to buy the lies of this world that somehow motherhood is a retreat from equality. Do not buy this lie about gender equality. You are equal to men already. Yet, men and women have different roles. God had invested motherhood with great honor, an honor which men cannot have. Friends, this is why, and this is why I think Paul is talking about this verse, even though it's difficult. She will be saved to childbearing if she continues in faith, love, holiness, and modesty. It is a way to put back the role of the woman in God's great storyline of redemption. Friends, all of this is based on the gospel. Everything Paul said last week and this week to men to be careful how they pray, to pray with holy hands without anger and dispute, and also to women to be modest and submissive. All of this makes sense because Paul had just earlier in verses 3 to 7 described the gospel. We can only do this when we understand the gospel. Friends, when we live the gospel daily in our lives, we actually are reminded of the greatest submission ever seen in human history. The submission of the son to his father. He humbled himself even to the point of death and death on the cross. The gospel is the greatest portrayal of submission and love and we're called to live it out as we worship God. May God enable us to understand worship as rooted in submission, worship as displayed in the difference between gender roles, and worship celebrated in the phrase childbearing as a means of salvation. God has honored women. Let's bow our heads in worship and prayer. Father,